0: Good morning, church. Good to see you. Hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep last night. I'll take it. When I was a kid, I I, I thought that daylight savings time, particularly fall back, I thought you get an extra hour of sleep like every day there on forward. And so yeah, that's a pretty good deal, right? But hey, we'll take it for one night. Well, you'll probably agree with me that we've had a good share of Controversial figures in recent history, making the headlines, showing up in the news and social media, politicians, public figures, athletes, billionaires that buy social media platforms. You know, this this dominates our world, and we hear about it constantly. And then, of course, much of this controversy plays out on social media, sort of an impersonal venue. To share opinions, and that's kind of part of the dynamic of our world today. But I'm sure many of you have been in that conversation that just takes a turn that you weren't looking for, weren't hoping for, you know, you're just trying to enjoy yourself at the party or at the family Thanksgiving gathering, and Uncle So-and-So takes the conversation into conspiracy or political partisanship or whatever it is, whatever flavor they like to talk about. In other cases, we sometimes know beforehand where people stand and what they often are obsessed with talking about, and so we may just then avoid those types of people. I'm sure you've all been there at one point or another. Well, just a few years ago when it felt like Some of the political discourse, especially in our country, was particularly heated and divisive. My dad got concerned that all of this dynamic could ruin the vibe at our family holiday gatherings. And so my dad came up with a rule. This rule was both silly, but he was also completely serious about it. My dad was concerned that the vibe would sour and so what he came up with was he, made, he, he took a jar and he said, this is the political talk jar. And the rule was that if any of us slipped up and began talking about politics, then we'd have to put a dollar in the jar. What's funny is that he took this giant like two foot tall pickle jar, you know what I'm talking about? And so he must have thought that some of us or certain individuals of us would really slip up and he would be able to raise a whole lot of money. (laughs) Well, as our text this morning reminds us out of John chapter 7, we have to remember that Jesus was one of the more controversial people in all of history. Nowadays, though, if you ask most people, if you just ask people on the street, or if you ask perhaps your non-church-going friends, or coworkers, or neighbors, they'd probably still have a pretty positive, favorable view of Jesus. He served the poor. He maybe even did miracles. He cared for others. So, for many, Jesus is in the good guy category. He's an important teacher perhaps even a prophet, maybe even a miracle worker. Maybe we'll just throw him in with all the other millions of gods in my religious world, in my religious understanding. But when we look at the Gospels, when we look at these texts that we've been preaching through as we're in John, we see that the crowds and the people and the religious leaders and everybody that encountered Jesus, they were directly confronted with the man with the person, with his truth, with the authority that he carried, with his rebukes, also with his compassion. And so in the Gospels, there's this very clear sense that you're either with Jesus or you're against him. Nowadays in our world, we have caricatures of Jesus. We have, some people have a limited understanding of the biblical accounts of Jesus and So we can look at all that and just sort of be casual observers of the man, the person. We can accommodate from Jesus what we like of him and then maybe throw out all the rest. This morning, as we look at John 7, we're going to consider this controversial Jesus figure. And we're also going to look at one of the many pivotal moments where he basically brings this controversy on himself. He invites it. And we're going to unpack the story of John 7. And we're going to look at two simple questions about this text. The first question is, what exactly is Jesus' offer in this text? And I'm going to forewarn you that we have to do a bit of work to drill down to really know and understand and appreciate what Jesus is doing here. But the second question we're going to ask is, what then is the response to this offer? How do the crowds respond? How do the religious leaders respond? But ultimately, how do we respond to this Jesus? And so, friends, as we turn to this text, would you join me as we first pray? So, God, this morning our prayer is simple. As always, we pray that you would open our hearts Illuminate our minds. Soften our hearts as well, Lord, to receive from you and to see you and experience you. Lord, use my words. Reveal yourself by your spirit through your word, which you promise to do. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, chapter 7 is this recording of Jesus' pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And he has to go there for the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And this festival is one of three pilgrimage festivals for Jews. And so what happened was devout Jewish males are encouraged to travel to Jerusalem, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship during this festival. In the beginning of this chapter, chapter seven records who they refer to as some of Jesus' brothers. I think very likely actual family members. These brothers pressure Jesus to go up for this feast. In verse 4, they tell him, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Well, just that text alone reveals a lot about where their minds were at as it related to what Jesus was trying to do. Basically, they're saying to Jesus, 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 don't you want to go public with this? Don't you want to really launch your movement, your campaign? You know, you should go to Jerusalem. There's going to be thousands of worshipers there. Take advantage of all that, Jesus. Build up your following. Clearly, these brothers have an earthly agenda for Jesus. But as we see, Jesus doesn't want to go on their terms. And so what he does is he sends them on their way and he holds back for a period of time until he can go in private. And that's what he does. But we're told also in verses 12 and 13, we we, we get a sense of the vibe that's already in Jerusalem, maybe even before Jesus arrives. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Well, the reality is, unlike my dad's political talk jar, that for these crowds, for these worshipers in Jerusalem, there was really nothing that, there was no force that could compel them to not talk about Jesus. He was the talk of the town. And pretty quickly, Jesus draws this attention on himself. He begins to teach in the temple courts he begins to make claims that his teaching comes from god pretty audacious claim he he calls out his biggest opponents who are these religious leaders and he says that they're hypocrites so of course debate begins about this jesus about his claims to be the christ and of course some say he can't be the christ he can't be the messiah we know where he comes from we know his family They say when Messiah comes, we're not going to know any of that. That's all going to be a mystery. Others think, just look at all these miracles. This all speaks for itself. This is the Christ. This is the one we've been expecting. So here, of course, we have controversial Jesus. But then this feast reaches this climactic moment, and it's where our text that was read begins today. And I want to forewarn you, for the next few minutes, we have to do a bit of work together to really unpack what's going on and to really understand what Jesus is saying and doing in this moment. And so first, we have to unpack some of just the backgrounds of this very feast that he is at. What were some of the expectations? What were on people's minds and hearts? But the other thing we have to do is to take a closer look at this critical verses 37 and 38, which is the crux of the whole passage, to understand what he's really saying and signaling. So first, I want to read this verse 37 and 38 for you, again, from the NIV. And then I'm going to make the case that I actually prefer another translation, but just first pass here, verses 37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival... Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So there's water imagery here that we have to address. And as you maybe have been picking up on along our journey through the book of John, is there's a whole lot of water imagery Jesus is using this metaphor again and again and again to point to himself, and this passage is no different. And so what's, what's behind some of the water imagery here? Well, I want you to understand that in this Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, that Jesus is at, this feast involved a, a daily procession of the priests from the, t- the temple in Jerusalem down the hill to the south gate of the city of Jerusalem, where that one of the priests would draw water. The priests would draw water that came from a spring that fed into what's called the Pool of Siloam. And this water, they believed, had cleansing power. It had purifying power. Some considered it living water. This would be used in ritual cleansing, ritual purification. And so one of the priests would dip a jar down, would draw some water, and then they would walk it in procession all the way back up the hill to the temple. And people would be singing and waving branches and dancing and praising in this moment. The painting that we have here is one rendering of what this scene back at the altar at the temple may have looked like. You see some worshipers there, you see the priests in robes, and you have the one priest standing at the top of the altar pouring out this living water. And this whole ceremony served two purposes. The first was that the priests, they wanted to foreshadow this Jewish future expectation that out of this very building, this very temple would flow streams of living water. It was this eschatological expectation they had that out of the temple of God would flow blessing to all the nations when God would fully establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. So you have priests like Ezekiel and Zechariah, rather prophets, Ezekiel and Zechariah, who have these visions in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, of this very thing that they're all hoping for and looking forward to. So there's sort of this this futuristic expectation. But also, these gatherers also have very pragmatic expectations in mind. Just for water, for, for God to send rain. You know, this is an agricultural society, and at this time when the feast happened, it often happened in late September, early October, this was a drought period in Israel. And so the people are well aware that the land is thirsty. And so they're grateful for the harvest that they've just harvested this autumn. And now they're praying to God for rains for the next growing season. So they know that their land is thirsty. But I bet you these pilgrims, these worshipers, were even thirsty. See, remember that during this feast, they would set up these little temporary huts, these little booths out in the streets of Jerusalem, and they would live there for the course of this festival. The rich, the poor, everybody in between lived outside in these booths or these sukkah. And so they're living in the elements. Maybe they're a little extra thirsty. Maybe they've just joined this procession from the Pool of Siloam. Maybe they're thirsty. And so I have to paint that picture for you because it's right into that moment that Jesus gets up and says, come to me for a drink. So that's the feast. That's number one. But secondly, I want to look at this specific verse, verses 37 and 38. So as you study this verse, there's some Translation difficulties here, the original language is a bit ambiguous, and so it can be read in two different ways, but I think it's important to drill down here. And so this time I want to read from you from a, for you from a different translation. And I think this translation deals with some of these difficulties a little bit better. I think it's a little bit closer to the, the, the theological intention here, and it's from the New English Translation. And so as I, as I read this to you, listen for any differences you may pick up on. On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and shouted out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink, period. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. So when I first looked at this verse, I often use my NIV Bible, which is what I typically use in preparation and my own study. And at first glance, it seems that what's happening here is that Jesus is talking about rivers of living water that will flow from within who. The believer, the one who believes. That's how we first read it. That's the natural reading of NIV and other translations. But as you think about it, you might recall how in John and throughout the New Testament, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all of these feasts and all of these Jewish institutions and all these festivals and symbols. Jesus is saying, it all points to me. And you might even remember that in John chapter 2, Jesus has already identified himself as what? As the new temple. And so after Jesus cleanses the Jerusalem temple in chapter two, people push back on him and they say, by what authority do you have to do this, Jesus? And Jesus says, oh, I'll give you a sign of my authority. Jesus says, verse 19 of chapter two, destroy this temple, this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And so I think what's going on here is in this moment, Jesus is saying and reminding again that I am the temple. That not in this physical building whose courts they're standing in as this whole thing is playing out. Not this physical building. I, Jesus is saying, am the very dwelling place of the presence and the power of God on this earth. Right in front of you. He is the temple. He is the dwelling place. It is from him, not this building, the temple, that this blessing Will flow to the nations one day. This blessing that their prophets had spoken of. So we've done all that. We've done all that work. All that work, I think, is critical. And so, with that understanding, what is Jesus offering? Again, our first simple question of this text Jesus is offering, come to me, come to me for cleansing. Come to me to satisfy your thirst. Come to me because it's from me, not this building, that all this blessing is going to flow to the nations of the earth. The priest, he says, use this so-called living water for purification and, and to foreshadow that, that's those streams of water that are going to come sometime in the future. But Jesus says, I alone am the source of living water that can actually cleanse you inside. That's what he's doing. Do you remember how back during the pandemic we all got obsessed with hand sanitizer? People were buying it all up and selling it for a profit early on. Do you remember this? That in toilet paper. But. Well, you think you're getting clean with hand sanitizer, but... My, I would argue that you're really just getting covered in hand sanitizer. You're trying to kind of cleanse your hands with this, and what's worse is you know you know those moments where the only option is the porta potty, and then inside the porta potty the only option is the hand sanitizer, right? So it's like, well, I guess I'm going to give it a pump and wash up, and but I don't think you, you know, you're not really cleaning your hands. You're just covering them in alcohol and chemicals. And then it gets in your food, you're trying to eat, and then it kind of tastes like that. It's just gross. (laughs) Jesus is saying, only I can really clean you. Only I can really purify you. Only I can really cleanse your heart and your mind. So what he's offering is true cleansing. What he's saying also is that that flow of blessing that you look forward to in the future that your prophet spoke of, he's saying that flow has already been turned on in me. Well, what are these streams of living water? What's he talking about? Well, I love when the Bible tells us. So John gives us a, some help in this editorial comment in verse 39. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what he's saying is that it's this Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit of God, which is this flow of blessing out of Jesus Christ, the temple, and then on into us as his people, and then on into the world as we carry him with us. This gift, this flow, this spirit would soon be poured out on the earth, but not before Jesus is first crucified and raised and glorified. And so the blessing only comes after Jesus experiences the curse. Well, the second question of the text is then, what is the response of these people to what Jesus is offering? Well, how do the pilgrims in Jerusalem respond? And then what is our response to him? And here we see controversial Jesus. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. So Jesus has just disclosed all that we just unpacked. This astounding revelation of who he is. But then some people say, I don't know. I don't think so. After all, how can a prophet come from the other side of the tracks? Galilee? Really? So some are convinced, some are not convinced. Some appeal to these technicalities to try to prove that he couldn't be the one. They say, we know his parents, we know his family, we know where he comes from. He can't be the Messiah. But it's interesting because they overlook some important information that even we have Some important information that we're often reminded of in the Advent season as we consider the birth of Christ, that in fact, he was born in Bethlehem, that in fact, he was descended from David, that in fact, he did descend from the tribe of Judah. And so these naysayers, not only do they not believe, but they seem unwilling to do the work. Sadly, I think this is true for many of us today, many in our world today. There's been many Christian thinkers over history, for example, C.S. Lewis, who you may have heard of. These Christian thinkers, they, they, they just confront us with really the logic of the situation when it comes to Jesus. They say that someone making these claims that Jesus is making, he's either out of his mind, he's either lying, or it's true must be one of these options. Simply good teacher doesn't cut it. Inspiring humanitarian worker can't cut it. In C.S. Lewis's famous book, Mere Christianity, he says this. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet. And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So friends, our prayer, my prayer, is that those of us who follow Christ, who know Christ, would represent him well in this world as we go about our lives. That we might draw others to him. Well, as chapter 7 winds to a close, we have an interesting little cameo appearance from a familiar friend, Nicodemus. You might remember in John chapter 3 where the perplexed but spiritually hungry, spiritually curious Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And Jesus tells him, basically, you have to be born all over again, Nicodemus, to even understand, to even see. And unlike his peers that we've encountered in this text, Nicodemus's posture towards Jesus is open. Nicodemus was someone who was willing to suspend some of his dearly held traditions and expectations and presuppositions to encounter this man, Jesus. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees, the very ones who are pushing back and rejecting Jesus. So he is one of them, saying, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, friends, what do we take from this text? The first thing is simply, for those of us who follow Christ, that we would simply grow in a, a, a sense of wonder and gratitude for what has flowed into our lives by God's Spirit as he has healed us, transformed us, saved us. Because what we have received, these crowds, these pilgrims in Jerusalem, can only very dimly see. And so let us be eager to pursue the Spirit of God And to ask him to fill us each day. But second is, the reality is that God extends this promise to to all people. But the question is, have we opened the door to Jesus like many in the crowds there? Many who were gathered there. Those like Nicodemus who left the door open for him. Or in disbelief, have we closed the door? to Jesus? Or worse, have we just settled to let Jesus become a good luck charm or an inspiration or one of the many gods in our buffet of belief? Or maybe just a neutral party who would never really ever ask anything of us? Well, friends, if you remain unsure or unconvinced, may God grant us all the ability to see this controversial Jesus, for who he really is. Let us pray. So God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, light of the world, that you left the glory of heaven, condescended and entered into the pain of our story to redeem our story. So God, we look to you. God, would you fill us afresh by your spirit, the very spirit of that flow of living water that flowed in and out of Jesus. Would you fill us and renew us today as you promised to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.